I would say keep pushing for what you want because you just might be going at it in a way that other people don't. And you just need to find the right people to have in your corner. Hey everyone, you're listening to 2M Creative Labs, the podcast. This podcast is for those looking to learn, be inspired, and find wisdom in others' story and process as they execute on their passions. Today, Danny joins us and shares her experience doing research for Polar Knowledge Canada and her journey to get to where she is today. I've known her from way, way back and her story is super inspiring. We talk about having a creative partner, the struggles of a student, and living sustainably. For anyone thinking of doing sciences or has some curiosity of that world, hope this gives you some insight into that. All right, so yeah, um, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming by. We've been trying to get you on since like the very first episode, really. But um, <laughs> why don't you uh, tell us a little bit of who you are and uh, what you do? Okay, so my name is Danny, and I just finished my undergraduate degree in physical geography. So I got a Bachelor of Science with honors. It took me six years to get it, but got through in the end, just barely. I work as a research assistant for Polar Knowledge Canada, which is a branch of the federal government. And I worked based out of Cambridge Bay in Nunavut for the summer, which is on Victoria Island, way the heck. Like, if you look at a map of Nunavut and then you see all the islands, on the like I was on the islands up there. Really? It's very cool. Oh it was gosh. actually on part of the Northwest Passage. Interesting. Very cool. Um, I'm about to start a master's degree in integrative biology. I don't quite know what that means. What that means yet? Don't worry, neither do I. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> maybe we we'll figure it out as we go through too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're obviously very different from most of the guests that we have. Um, you're coming from a science background, and most of our guests come in as a creative mm-hmm. in some shape or form. But I know you are a creative spirit as well. Mm-hmm. But tell me how you got into what you're doing now and what exactly into science and how you've made this decision to do your master's yeah so I kind of fell into science um when I started university Harper was still dictatoring dictatoring (laughs) that's a word right anyway so he was kind of in his full swing of like muzzling science is what they kind of dubbed it and I didn't really want to study science because he, during his regime, a lot of jobs in science like weren't available. And I was thinking, oh my God, if I do an entire degree in science and graduate and I won't be able to get a job, maybe a little paranoid, but um, I started out in arts. So I love English literature and I was studying that stuff and I loved anthropology and like, it was just all over the place. And I kind of remembered back to high school and I really, really love learning about environmental science. So I decided to try some of those courses and I really liked it. Then I realized I'm really bad at chemistry. So I had to change my program a couple times. And by my fourth year, I still hadn't declared my major. (laughs) Four years of university and I didn't even know like what my degree was gonna be. And I ended up getting a job in Churchill despite the fact that I didn't really know much about science. Like I was still pretty apprehensive about it all. It seemed like sort of an elitist 
like us and them type thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I felt that it was, I wasn't smart enough Mm -hmm. to do it, especially because first year science is, is sort of designed to weed out weak students. And I was like kind of one of those weaker students academically and not helping anything. Some of my male professors told me that they didn't think I should get a science degree, that I should switch to arts because I was stronger in the arts. Um, I also had a student advisor refuse to plan a science degree for me, even though that's what I had asked her to do. Mm-hmm. Instead, she planned an arts degree and told me if I wanted to plan a science degree, I can do it by myself. So I felt a little bit like it was sort of this exclusive group that you had to have like a certain IQ or certain characteristics to be part of. Turns out that's not true at all. I was just really letting those few sort of not super friendly people get to me. So luckily I was given a job in Churchill as a research technician at a field station. I had never worked in science before. I had never written in a field book before. I didn't even own a pair of hiking boots. And yeah, it just made me realize anybody can do it. Like it's it's crazy how it seems like it's out of reach, but it's not. So I went up there and then I started thinking, hmm, I can kind of see how going to university is a means to an actual end. And I really like doing field work. So I kind of just buckled down and I decided to do an honors thesis randomly. That was never, I didn't even think I'd finish my degree at all. And um, while I was in Churchill, my boss and one of the profs from University of Winnipeg were like, well, there's this project and you could do it. And it's like, okay. And then after I did that, I thought, why don't I just continue on and get a master's degree? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so I've, I've felt like I've been just like stumbling into everything. Like nothing was really planned. Like I didn't graduate high school thinking, all right, by 2022, I'm going to have a master's. And by this age, I'm going to have a PhD and doing mm-hmm. this, this, this. It's like, oh, well, this kind of came up. I may as well give that a shot. Oh, this kind of, that's there. Yeah. Why not try it out? So... That's interesting. I didn't realize kind of how many barriers you've had to like run into getting into science. Well, I mean, like we've known each other from high school, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know, know you, Mm -hmm. but it never really did seem like you were into science. I knew you were like big into literature and we used to work together. And that's kind of, that's kind of where that like. (laughs) Yeah. I really didn't like science. Yeah, exactly. That's what I figured. Right. (laughs) And that's, that's what I knew you as at the time. I was like, you like reading things and like we we bonded over those like artistic mm. stuff more than anything. Video games was a big thing for me in high school too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in high school, I actually took the very, very minimum amount of science mm-hmm. and I took like the maximum amount of English lit stuff. But in high school, I was part of this organization called Envirothon, which is like, it's... The environmental science version of like mathletes. Mm-hmm. So it's like super nerdy. It's a lot of work, but it was a really great, great way for high school level kids to um, try, try field work, sort of get out and do competitions. And yeah, it was really fun. And that sort of inspired me to mm-hmm. actually pursue environmental science as a as a career. And I also realized that I just don't learn 
the way that a lot of university professors teach. So for the first few years of university, I felt so stupid because I wasn't getting super high marks. And it turns out I'm just really bad at multiple choice <laughs> exams, <laughs> like horrible. So when I actually got into the upper level courses, I started getting like A's. Right. But in the lower level courses in science, I could not get above a C. Turns out I'm just bad at multiple choice. So, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been an interesting like discovery. It was just annoying. Because yeah. I'm like, how many other students are out there that feel very defeated by those intro level courses mm-hmm. and just never get past that and either just give up or they change programs? Like it just makes me kind of sad to think about all the people who are giving up. Yeah, for sure. Talk to me about that then, because I know clearly you've, you're the one that didn't give up on Mm -hmm. that pursuit of science, environmental sciences, Mm -hmm. even though like all these, you're getting all these no's, all these multiple choice questions that are just making you struggle. But what was it that kind of kept you going beyond and saying like, you know, like, but this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to try and go after. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it was that my parents would not let me quit (laughs) because they're like, you need to do this because we didn't get to go to university. So I knew that they would kill me if I actually quit for real. Um, And then the other thing is just having those like one or two professors that kind of got through to me and said, you are capable of this stuff. You just have to push a little harder than other students. So that one professor for me was Dr. Nora Kassin. She's just incredible. She recently got like a million dollar grant at the University of Winnipeg. She's now the research chair for the university. She's killing it. She just got a brand new lab in the Richardson building, which is like that that building on Portage with the periodic tables of the elements. Like she's amazing. So I had a couple classes with her a few years back before I decided to do an honors. And um, it was a tough course. It was hydrology, which is, I would say 80% math based. And my brain doesn't handle numbers very well, Mm -hmm. which is another, I think, thing that people like when you think science, you think you have to be amazing at math and chemistry and stuff. I am not good at these things. It's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's someone else who will do it. Anyway, so she was the one who like I was in her office three times a week getting help. Um, I was consistently handing in assignments late because they were really hard. And so I would take extra time because I wanted to do them right. She never gave me late marks because she knew that I was trying really hard. And so, and she was actually instrumental in me getting that job in Churchill. And she was my supervisor for my undergraduate thesis. She also gave me a job in her lab. So I was working in a biogeochemistry lab in my undergraduate. Yeah, it was fantastic. And so having someone like that on your side who has never said like, because I did have a few professors tell me to switch to arts, like I mentioned, but she she's just so positive, just constant radiating optimism. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to um, sort of get the idea in your head that you're not good enough when she's constantly like, get help. I'll be there for you. Like do whatever you need to do. You can get through it type thing. So Mm -hmm. I think I can contribute most of my, um, academic success to her. And the, the geography department at university of Winnipeg is fantastic because it's so small. So I think most of the professors by the end of my degree, I knew by first name, first name basis, 
it's like you could walk down that hallway and stop in any of those offices and just have a chat with them. Like it was really chill place and very supportive environment. So I think if I went to U of M, I wouldn't have made it this far just based on my own, what I perceived as shortcomings. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think the environment that was created at the university of Winnipeg with like the small class sizes and accessibility and stuff like that really, really contributed to me actually finishing something. (laughs) That's awesome though. And like, have you ever talked to her about what she saw that what kept her from saying like, all right, that's it. Like we can't like, you know, yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. I think, so just getting to know her. So her, one of her sisters works with um, differently abled high school level students in Ontario, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And so, and she actually started, she had an education degree. So she used to be a high school teacher. And I think that sort of, and she's just a very compassionate person. So I think like seeing what her sister does and stuff like that made her realize that the system is sort of designed for a very particular type of learner to succeed. And so she wanted to make everyone, she wants, she wants everyone to be successful. So she's, she was fantastic for um, really giving people second and third and fourth chances, even though like no other professor would type thing. Um, yeah, so her sort of acceptance, I think, was a big, a big thing. I didn't ever actually ask her, but um, I think she realizes that if you give someone enough support and acceptance, that they'll sort of flourish on their own. Because mm-hmm. I think quite a few of her students are kind of yeah. in the same boat. And I feel like a lot of undergraduates get really down on themselves about stuff. But um, yeah, she's just an incredible person. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. for sure. And I think that's that's probably what I mean, in my assumption, kind of what she saw is that regardless of all the troubles you have, Mm -hmm. like early on, your passion for this really shows and that you are willing to put in the extra effort Mm -hmm. and that you are trying. Yeah. You know, like because you can, yes, you as it is the professor's job set to make your students succeed. But Mm -hmm. to a certain point, you can't you have to at least let them fall on their own. Exactly. And know when. Okay, like, are you even trying anymore? Yeah. Versus like you yeah. are trying, you are coming in for those extra mm-hmm. hours like regularly. Yeah. And it, it goes to show that, okay, like my effort here of putting you through is not wasted. Exactly. Right. And it's hard to gauge that, I think. Like not I everybody can figure out that you really are trying here. Yeah. Versus like you just like the attention or something. Or like, you know what? So many students will are just full of excuses because they don't want to put the work in type thing. And I, you're right. I think it's really hard to differentiate between... The students are who are actually trying hard, but you're not really seeing much on the like the output side almost, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because of like mental mental illness or like stuff at home or whatever. Um, and to be able to actually recognize that they're maybe not as I guess stereotypically successful as some of the other students. Mm. Um, like I know some of the other even within my lab, so there was only four of us. It was so small. And um, two of the students, so it was like me, two guys, and then one other girl. The other girl, we all graduated this year. She got a gold medal because she got the highest GPA in her program in environmental sciences. One of the other guys in my 
in my lab got the gold medal for our program for physical geography. So it's like, these are people who are very, very strong academically, but we're still, we still both got like the same Mm -hmm. degree. You know what I mean? Like we still ended up with the same, same thing in the end. So I think it's, it's really important to not measure yourself based on your GPA. Like that's not a direct equivalent of how smart you are or how valuable you are. You'll, you'll get recognized for your achievements, even if they're not academic. That's a very good point. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard as a, as a student, you know, like that's usually the first thing you look at. Right. And so you kind of have to, that's the only thing they look at. So you kind of have to recognize that some things like they're not just all numbers, you know, like there are other things that you can measure, but for sure Mm -hmm. the output is also important. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I just know for me, like I really struggled with my GPA because those first few years I was so directionless Mm -hmm. and I was working so much. So when I finally got to like my fourth year and I wanted to buckle down, there's no way I'm going to recover four years worth of like a kind of mediocre GPA. So that's the only thing that would have kept me from getting into grad school. I was so like my GPA was just on the nose for the minimum requirement, but it's funny because I have more practical experience than the like of a lot of people applying to do master's degrees, but it doesn't matter if you don't have that GPA. And that's kind of what I don't like about academics is that. Yeah. Like we tend to discredit a lot of practical experience for again, like the numbers and Mm -hmm. And I mean, I understand that you can kind of associate that with some sort of like level of skill, but mm-hmm. really like you could be book smart, but you might not necessarily be. And, and yeah. it's, it's tough. Like, yeah. yeah, academics wise, it's pretty tough. I am not a huge fan of academics in general. I think I've mentioned that before, <laughs> but um, yeah, because I have practical experience, but I was also excluded from major scholarships right. because my GPA is 1% too short, mm-hmm. but because and it's funny because I have like all this research experience, I had really strong um, references in general, but because it was 1% too short, my GPA, they just threw out my applications without even reading them. Oh my God. That was like some big government awards, like $22,000 awards to support my master's. So I actually didn't get a single award from, for my master's program yet because I was excluded from everything because Jeez. of that 1%. So that's tough. That's yeah. really tough. But you're still going through with it. Hey, that's awesome, though. Well, that's the, again, that's the that's the cool thing about that is like, regardless of all of that, all the things that you started off with from the first four years of university, mm-hmm. like here you are now, right? And realizing that this is what you want to do, and you're going to put in the extra work for it. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. Yeah. With no, like the absolutely. one to two people that are backing you behind, right? Yeah, that's, that's all you need. Like yeah. as long as you have that one person in your corner and that's in the right place. Like obviously, externally, I have you know, my partner and my parents, everybody supporting you. But if you don't have someone from within that academic environment that is saying you can do it, then it sort of feels a little bit daunting and scary. For sure. Yeah. Speaking of your partner, Mm. so he's our very first guest on this podcast. And how are things? And you tell me more about being in a relationship with somebody that is creative centric and also obviously like how does that affect that whole thing because I mean we mentioned that you both are traveling a lot and like doing all these things more separate than together Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um I think because he's back and forth from Australia and doing festivals and stuff like that 
and I'm sort of in and out doing conferences and taking contracts in the Arctic to work and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's interesting because it's a similar plight in terms of like finding funding and finding money Mm -hmm. and being valued in a sort of like monetary sense. Um, and also I think weirdly science does have a creative side to it because you have to really work within the limits of your funding, which is never enough. Like you never have enough funding, but in terms of our relationship, I feel like, yeah, our, our lifestyles are very complementary to each other just because one of us isn't sort of like always waiting at home for the other person. Like it's a sort of mutual understanding that we both have to be wherever (laughs) at any time. And uh, I think that's really great that we, that we're able to, to do that without the other person getting kind of bitter. Hmm. I don't know. Oh no, it's, life is hard and the having that support, you know, like Mm -hmm. just without any like hassle or expectations of like, oh, this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was, I always find it fascinating, like the more I think about it, like with his music Mm -hmm. and the way like his inspiration, where it's coming from and your, your work background and where you're going towards. I thought that's really cool how that kind of meshed together, but yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. And, um, I know like when he was in Churchill, there were quite a few scientists interested in his work, particularly there is one lady who is studying beluga vocalizations. Mm -hmm she really wanted to quantify Beluga's response to his music, Um, which is funny because if you like see the videos or if you were there, you can see the whales there everywhere and they sort of swarm right when Rob starts playing and they hang on and it's sort of like a call and response that he did with them. But it's, it's just such a, it's funny, like the scientist's mind is like, but we need to quantify this. (laughs) We need to know, we need some data. We need hard data. How many whales are there? Like, what are their responses? Stuff like that. It's really funny. But um, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, he actually did a few performances at the field station that I was working at. And it was hugely popular. Like, I feel like you need... It's hard to exist in a world of just, like, numbers and data and stuff like that. You, I think it's super important to have the, also the creative side. And most scientists I know actually do have a lot of like creative projects on the go um like my (laughs) my boss up north in cambridge bay he brews beer from scratch in Nineveh and that's like his creative outlet Mm -hmm. so he he like ships up the grains like he doesn't do it from a kit like he does it from scratch and i feel like that's sort of his his creative outlet and um actually quite a few scientists that i know in winnipeg are like really amazing um painters and sculptors and they do all kinds of stuff like that so i think the two communities are very sort of ingrained within each other no that's i think that's true though right and they kind of can go hand in hand for sure Mm -hmm. and i feel like i mean personally me and i've come from a science background first Mm -hmm. that the numbers can be draining and it is nice to have some sort of creative outlet right Mm -hmm. yeah for sure i think so Yeah. yeah So talk to me about being up north. And so the funny thing is, I think I was talking to Rob and we went to his show Mm. and I think he showed me a picture. No, no, no. I I think I saw it on Instagram. It was like all the recycling in one bag. Oh, yeah. So um, 
I was really far north, further north than I've ever been before. Uh, it's a fly-in only community and they just burn garbage there. There's no recycling. There's no, there's nothing there. Uh, and I know why it's, it's so remote. Like there's no way there, the community is only 1600 people. Mm -hmm. Um, the government of Nunavut just, it would be impossible for them to build recycling facilities in every tiny community in the region. So what I ended up doing was saving all my cardboard and bringing it all back down south with me so I could properly recycle it. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it's just going to be burned. And yeah. I mean, I know it wasn't much, but it made me feel a little tiny bit better about, mm -hmm. <laughs> about being there. And it's really hard to throw recycling in the garbage. Yeah. It feels so wrong, like having this big thing of cardboard and tossing it in the garbage or like aluminum cans and stuff like that. So... Yeah, um, in terms of someone who is trying to reduce my ecological footprint and my carbon footprint, it was it's tough transitioning. Um, however, it did make me realize that that lifestyle is it comes from a place of privilege because people up there they they don't have access to the same stuff that we have down south so even even things like being able to take the bus or going to a farmer's market or choosing to be vegan that's not possible for them up there because it's just hard to have the uh the products available to actually live like that um a lot of people live like a more traditional lifestyle there. It's, I think the, it was something like 95% Inuit there and it's incredible. Their, their lifestyle is just incredible. They're such hardy people. The environment there is so hostile. It's well from coming from the South. Like I would say mm -hmm. it's pretty hostile. <laughs> it's cold. Um, everything's frozen. There's no trees, like 24 hour daylight in the summer. And, um, for them, that's just home. Like mm -hmm. I doubt they would call it hostile, but coming from the South, I would. So yeah, it makes you kind of appreciate how, um, how much they've survived and how resilient they are. And it's just, yeah, especially considering like they're only in solid, um, communities, like living in homes and stuff like that, because the government sort of forced them to do that which is where a lot of their socioeconomic problems come from. Right. Because traditionally they were very nomadic people. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting culture up there. It's as it's so different from anywhere mm -hmm. else I've been before. That's super fast. I've never, I've never looked at it this way. Like the fact that we have the privilege mm. of taking the bus or mm -hmm recycling facilities or <laughs> the ability to go to these local markets instead of like all the other alternatives that we have choosing to go vegan because up north like where the hell are they growing vegetables from they just can't right that's what i'm saying <laughs> but to realize that as like a privilege that's a very fascinating perspective because mm. i've never seen it that way before mm. like this is the first instance this conversation where like I have this opportunity to do these mm -hmm. things. And I think it's a bit of a social responsibility as well because it's the urbanization of the Earth's human population. is That's kind of what 
has begun to cause all that ecological strain on resources because you're like funnel you're you're funneling all these resources resources in to support like such a densely packed amount of people and up north it's they can't choose to just like well they all have to drive first of all like you can't not drive um they use stool wheels and and atvs mostly and trucks and stuff like that yeah it's pretty fun actually um and it's funny because even like scientists and stuff, they they fly around all the time. Like they have helicopters, they do all that kind of stuff. It's oh my god! Ironic that they're, north, they're doing climate change re- change research and they're like burning all these fossil fuels <laughs> to do it. It's so <laughs> ironic. But anyway, um, last year, so summer twenty eighteen, when I was in Churchill, the train was still down and food was like outrageously expensive. Um, it got to the point where I basically just wasn't eating when I wasn't at work because. This was a choice, like my choice, just to not not go grocery shopping and not eat. But I ended up in the hospital partially because I had a virus, partially because of dehydration, partially because of poor nutrition, because I was vegetarian at this time. And it kind of made me realize um, the foods that I wanted to eat because of my chosen vegetarian lifestyle, it was so expensive that it was not sustainable for me to keep mm-hmm. sort of doing. And so it kind of made me realize, all right, that's just not something that I can survive off of at that time there. Um, so when I went up north this time, way further north, um, it was, I had it in the back of my head. If I can't be vegetarian here, I'm not going to put my own health on the line. And uh, it was actually kind of nice because there's still a lot of harvesting of, they call it like country foods up there. So I got to try all sorts of fun different animals like muskox and stuff like that lots of arctic char which is a really yummy fish and um i I actually met some vegans in winnipeg (laughs) this one time uh they were a lovely couple like super great people they they actually grow a lot of their own food and then when i told them that i'd been up north they they told me that they were planning on driving to reservations um like yeah so in northern manitoba and they were gonna teach people how to be vegan in these areas where it's like they don't even have clean drinking water Mm -hmm. they can't grow their own food the food that they do get is tends to be like on its way out of uh, existence (laughs) and for someone who's from the Winnipeg area and who has like a nice big garden and access to all this fresh food for them to say these people, their lifestyle is wrong. That to me, again, it's like, okay, let's think about our privilege here. And so that that's kind of when it came into perspective for me, what mm-hmm. you have to, what you have to prioritize depending where you are type of thing. That's a, yeah, that's a very good point, right? Is not everybody has the capacity to where they are now. Mm-hmm. But so like you moving up there and up north, like way up north. Mm-hmm. I love how far up north you actually got. <laughs> like that's not a feasible option if you did want to sustain living. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You, um, you don't even have the choice to. Yeah. Um, like I'm sure if I tried really hard, I could have tried to be vegan there but mm-hmm. did i even have the money for it i'm not sure yeah. like it's crazy expensive there so mm-hmm. i had this conversation at 
brunch with somebody and she was saying like if the one the one steak a month is going to keep you vegan for the rest of like the month rest like the month, yeah. like that's not, that's still much better than mm. what most people would do yeah and for if sure. that's what's going to keep you like you know plant based or whatever mm-hmm. or whatever lifestyle you're trying to do that's keeping the world in a better shape mm-hmm. like then i don't see why that's a problem it's definitely not right? and it really it really bothers me when people are so judgmental about um like oh you're trying to be zero waste well you're not zero waste enough or there's like so much judgment constantly and to me it's like if you decide to not have meat with every single meal that's already a step in the right direction just because you're you're not jumping from like eating steak with dinner every night to being vegan you're still contributing to the overall like eating less meat like ah i don't know i just people are so negative and it's like we just need to start supporting lifestyle choices especially this is very like science-based all the eating less meat and all that stuff so when you know that that's the way that can sort of push the world into a more sustainable direction anything helps and i think you're totally right i think Mm -hmm. even if you have one steak a month that's you're not gonna single-handedly murder the entire planet (laughs) (laughs) hopefully (laughs) talk to me about that so serena and i talk about the one person doesn't contribute a lot Mm. so they just don't feel the need to do it Mm -hmm. how do you respond to somebody in that scenario or they say like i'm just one person i can't make a difference like yeah um i hear that a lot especially from um the older generation like my parents generation and i think there's also a lot of misinformation out there with like with anything um it's sometimes hard to either commit to staying on top of the newest science or it's just overwhelming to begin with. But um, I don't know. It's, that's a tough, it's tough to try to get the, a good answer. But obviously the corporation, the big corporations are responsible for the majority of um, the ecological destruction around the entire world but we start we're we're, we're at an age where you vote with with your wallet basically and yes you're just one person but what happens if three million people make the same decision that'll that'll say something to the people who are actually raking in all the money but it's funny because it kind of gets to a point where now i think a lot of corporations are capitalizing on this movement So you'll see like people will just, so like, let's say reusable water bottles. Fantastic. I'm so happy people are using them, but I opened my mom's cupboard and she's got like 30 (laughs) or like something crazy. And it's like, I love that you're on board with this and you obviously believe that this can make a difference, but it like kind of defeats the purpose by you're keep you're spending more and there's resources distracted to make that and mm-hmm. all this stuff so i just especially with um like reusable grocery bags that's become such a big thing yeah. it's crazy because i think there was some sort of crazy statistic like those bags um they take so much more resources to actually make them than plastic and 
when they decompose, they, I think they release like more chemicals or something than plastic. Like it was some sort of weird. And I was like, this just destroyed everything that I thought about why people use reusable bags. But again, like I opened my mom's cupboard and she's got like a hundred reusable bags. And at that point it's like, you're, (laughs) (laughs) you're supposed to get like one (laughs) and that's supposed to replace every plastic bag that you would use for like the rest of your life or whatever. Cause I think you need to, you you need to use one of those bags like 150 times for it to be worth it or whatever. So when you hear stuff like that, I can, I can tell why people are really discouraged. Um, However, I'll give one really great example from this summer. So in Cambridge Bay, they often have like community events. Mm -hmm. And one of the events was like a father's day dinner And I have been making a huge push in my own mind to never use disposable cutlery and stuff like that. Cause that's something that I was really bad for previously. And it's like, I carry a purse everywhere. How come I can't just carry some cutlery? So I started doing that now. And um, my roommates and I went to this dinner. It was a potluck style dinner. And we brought our own plates and our own cups and all that stuff. It's such a small community. Like we only had to walk two blocks. It was not a big deal. And we are the only people to bring our own stuff. And then I think the next day, the town had posted on the the Facebook like bulletin board saying that from now on, they're not going to be supplying disposable cutlery because they're going to be expecting everybody to bring their own. So just, I did it one time and it kind of snowballed it snowballed immediately so i think that's really important and even bringing your own coffee cup to places like my mom and i were in adelaide and we went to a coffee shop and we had our own cups and the ladies behind us were like oh i didn't even know you could do that and stuff it's like stuff that just doesn't occur to people but when you when they see see it happening it becomes something that they could incorporate into their daily mm-hmm. routine you kind of have to lead by example in some senses too right mm-hmm. I, I love that that story of like, bringing your own like cup. Like, it's like just never occurred to anybody just to, and that's fine. Like it just had to take, one person just had to do it. And Yeah, we, we tend to kind of just go as we've normally done. And mm-hmm. then when something kind of comes into view, that's like, wait a second. And it really makes you think and yeah. you start being more conscious of yeah. the actions that we've just taken for granted. Yeah. And then, like you said, the word snowball. So it's like, okay, so now we brought our own place to this one thing and then that's going to lead to something else and something else and especially in small towns I feel like it might be easier to implement sort of like stricter Hmm. like maybe we should get paper bags instead of plastic and stuff I don't know how feasible that is there just because I only lived there for two months but that's just an example of Mm -hmm. something that would be easier to implement because there's only two grocery stores in the entire town so wow yeah <laughs> but it's a start you know and yeah. like it's it's not something that's going to happen overnight where everybody's on board but for sure it does yeah. build up right? and that being said i think a lot of northerners there's there are more pressing issues than plastic bags yeah, like sure. access to healthcare maybe comes to mind <laughs> so i understand like they have things that are way higher priority but um mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's possible to get there, I think. I think so, too. Mm-hmm. I think we're moving. Most of us are going in the right direction, and I think the world in general. Um, so if somebody came up to you and, you know, saw your work in your sciences and you're doing your master's and they're very, like, they're following you along the journey mm-hmm. and said, 
one day I want to be like that. I'm not very good at sciences. I've never been somebody that like really enjoyed it in high school. Mm -hmm. And again, played, I played basically where you were at before. What would you tell them to kind of keep them or like as advice? So I think that it's important to try to gain practical experience. And I think that's what's really sorely lacking in the education system. Um, a lot of classroom-based stuff just doesn't do justice to actually getting out into the field and, and doing stuff like that. So for me, it was getting my first field job and going to a remote place and working with I don't even know how many different researchers across such a broad spectrum of different sciences. Um, to me, that was completely pivotal because all those people that I was working with up in Churchill were so just welcoming and supportive and kind, even though, you know, these people, a lot of them have PhDs or masters and stuff like that. I wasn't even done my undergrad by that point, but it didn't matter. Like the, I didn't get treated any differently. And so I think a good start would be to, if you're in university, I would just talk to some different professors and see if they have any positions in their lab or if they have any summer positions and stuff like that. That'll be, cause that's a, that's a fairly short term commitment. And that'll give you a good idea if you're more of like a lab person or if you're more of a field person or not at all. So that way you won't force yourself to do an entire science degree and be miserable the whole time and then get your first job in science and be like, oh my God, I hate this. Which um, like someone I know, she didn't actually work in the field until she did her honors thesis. And then she just kind of realized I'm not meant for the field. <laughs> so at least she knows now before she graduated. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's like the complete opposite for other people. So this one guy that I know, he was doing an environmental studies degree, which is an arts program. And this summer he got his first job in the field out on Lake Winnipeg on the research vessel. And he now is like, I'm changing my whole program. I want to work in the field. This is what I want to do. So I think it's really important just to get practical experience, just so you have a better understanding of what, what it's like. And then mm -hmm. you'll know, do I hate it? Do I love it? Is it okay? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think. I can totally relate to it, like going through the school system and mm -hmm. just dreading like all these paperwork. And then when you finally get your first real like experience in, in some sort of way, and you might get that earlier on and that's great. Cause then you really get, get a feel for how it's like. Mm -hmm. And that's when it, that's when things kind of switches like, okay, like I don't mind this hated sitting in front of one, one person for like an hour and a half writing yeah. stuff versus like, well, I'm working in the actual field and mm -hmm. it's a completely different experience. And that might, that experience actually might be the one that pushes you to do much better in like That's multiple, what multiple choice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's but so funny. No, no, I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. It's like school, I mean, it does what it can to prepare you, but I don't know how much it actually, <laughs> you need that practical experience. And I think it's also a mistake to go through your entire education without getting a job. Like a lot of people will do really, really well in school and they won't work. So they'll get like scholarships and stuff and can support themselves that way. But especially now, if you graduate university and you have not had a single job on your resume, I think that makes it like it, it ends up putting a barrier in front of you in, instead of 
promoting you. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's important. It's important to be balanced, I think, in, in what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're in your undergraduate degree, master's degree, or whatever you're doing. It's balance is important. Yes. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, for any person that is going through those doubts and getting running into those walls, but they keep thinking like, you know, like I really want to do sciences or I really want to be up north and do that. Mm-hmm. But people are telling them, you're much more suited for the arts. What would you, what would you part with them? I would say keep pushing for what you want because you just might be going at it in a way that other people don't. And you just need to find the right people to have in your corner So whether that's at university and it's just one prof that you really liked, I'd really encourage everyone to interact with professors, not just in class, but outside of class, because they can become really, really valuable resources in terms of just like getting jobs, being an amazing reference even. So in an academic setting, yeah, I would say just keep your... Like, don't have blinders. Just be open to new experiences and chatting to other students and stuff like that is so important. I made the mistake of sort of, like, closing myself off from everyone. I would show up to class and then I'd leave as soon as class ended. But when I sort of made that shift where I started actually talking to profs and other people, that's sort of when things started coming together for me. So it's really important to keep everything wide open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for anybody that's struggling with their GPA? It depends what you want to do. If you just want a degree, fine. Like, it doesn't matter. If you want to get into a master's program, just (laughs) take some of those uh, fluff courses just to bump yourself up to what you need. And yeah, it'll it'll work out. It'll be fine. Like, I met this guy this summer who is now doing a PhD. Mm -hmm. He was almost expelled from his undergrad because his GPA was so low. And now he's doing a PhD. So... I truly believe anything's possible. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, how can anybody that's listening to this podcast support you and your work? And how can we push you to keep going through your master's? Oh, man. Well, I think what would be amazing for me is if people, I don't know, learn more about Arctic science, I think is really, really important. So I'm joining uh, a group in Guelph called the CBG Group. And they recently published a paper. I think they barcoded something like a million Arctic species. And so that's the project that I'm jumping on. It's all about like DNA barcoding. So yeah, I think a lot of Arctic research is really important and educating yourself on that. It's really great. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely do that and maybe bring our own cutlery to the next potluck for sure. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for doing this, Annie. Thank you so much. If you like this episode, iTunes ratings are dope and helps us a lot more than you think. Please share it with your friends, subscribe and get notified when the next episode drops, follow us on social media and send us a message there because we do want to hear your thoughts and we'll see you in the next one.